0: Fellowship Greenville. So thankful to be with you today. Uh, If you are our guest, uh, my name is Jason. I'm one of the guys on the teaching team. Super thankful that you're joining us. And Johnny and Matt have already told you where you could go to get some more information, whether out in the commons or QR code. But thank you so much for joining us. We know there's a lot of places that you could be today, but the fact that you're here with us, we do not take that for granted. As the video captured, it was a wonderful, joy-filled Easter weekend. From our Good Friday service through all three of our Easter services, we had well over 5,000 people on campus, uh, which is unbelievable. So many of you either in, uh, you invited someone or you were invited by someone, and so thank you so much for being intentional in that regard. We do rejoice that uh, several people indicated that they would like to begin following Jesus with their life, and so that's absolutely the best.) Never take that for granted. Um, I wanna say thank you to literally the hundreds and hundreds of you that served others over the course of the weekend with no expectation of return. Yeah, yeah, you really did. Thank you so much. You welcomed and you greeted and you poured coffee and you served the children and fellowship kids and you ran sound and cameras and played music. I wanna acknowledge this. Uh, A lot of you, gave up your preferred service time so that others would have uh, room to join us. And so thank you so much for that. With so many people uh, joining us here at Fellowship Greenville, I wanted to take a moment and uh, once again articulate our desire as a staff team and as a pastoral team to truly uh, walk with you, with you and your family. Like we, we wanna care well for you uh, we long to see, we, we pray and long to see you grow in the Lord, which we believe happens within the context of community and around a common mission of actually being the church. And so we acknowledge there are a lot of people here at Fellowship Greenville, so it's imperative that we have a pathway for people to be cared for and to be discipled and to serve others as we all live on mission in our spheres of influence. So if you're interested in knowing more about those pathways, those on-ramps, so to speak, that we have in place, I want to encourage you to stop by our Next Steps area out in the Commons. Also at the back of Auditorium 2, there's a space there that you could stop by. You could learn more about those next steps of connecting here, serving here, truly getting plugged in to the life of the church. Uh, There's two other connection points I want to mention really briefly. We have a brand new, like as of today, uh, community groups uh, center. It's it's in the commons, this end of the commons. And uh, some of our community group leadership team will be there after the service. If you're interested in finding out more about connecting and community here at Fellowship. And also next Sunday evening, May 1st, um, we're gonna be having a membership class. And so if you're interested in becoming a member here or learning more about what it means to be a member, and belong here at Fellowship Greenville, uh, you can sign up for that as well. You can stop by Next Steps. They'll tell you more about that. You can actually, if you want to, even right now, you can go to the QR code there and you can sign up for that. Uh, we have room for 125, and as of this morning, we already had 100 people signed up. And I talked about it during the nine o'clock service as well. So I don't know; maybe it's full. But anyway, you can do that right now. It's totally fine. Like you can do that while listening to what I'm teaching. It's totally fine. You can do that if you want. I'll give you permission. Uh, but if you want more information, right, let me say this: If you're signed up to come to that, would you would you please come? Uh, because if you don't, then that means other people couldn't get in, and they couldn't get you know. You know what I mean? So be there if you've already signed up. That'd be great as well. I, I just I know that we. Uh, I know that we regularly take time on a Sunday morning to briefly share how people can get plugged in. One of the pieces of feedback that we often receive is that for a a large church, numerically, that there is a uh, friendliness and a warmth and an intentionality amongst all of y'all, amongst the people here. And I, I really do believe that that's because so many of you are stepping into environments where you're cared for, where you can care for others, where you're known and where you can know others, where you serve others with no expectation of return, where you live on mission with others. So thanks for being intentional. My prayer is that we would continue to, uh, my prayer has been that we would continue to create space for others like the many before you created space for you and your family. I don't ever wanna take that for granted. Let's pray together and then we'll jump in to our study. Father God, you are uh, incredibly kind and gracious to us for those that you continue to bring to be a part of the Fellowship Greenville family, we thank you. Uh, We don't take that for granted. And at the same time, we acknowledge that it's not about us. It's about you and the opportunity we have to actually be the church in the places that you have put us. And so I'm thankful that even this morning as we gather in this place to worship you through song and through fellowship and through the studying of your word, we just take a moment and remember that we're gathering with uh, brothers and sisters around the globe, Christ followers all around the globe that are gathering in lots of different places under lots of different roofs and in open spaces to proclaim your excellencies, to celebrate life in you and how you have radically altered our destiny. So thankful. May we never take it for granted. In Jesus' sweet name we pray, amen. Amen. So this morning we're kicking off our study uh, through the book of Ruth and you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles or maybe on your mobile device of choice to uh, Ruth chapter one if you'd like. If you're newer with us, Uh, here at Fellowship, we are usually walking uh, through books of the Bible on a Sunday morning. It is our preferred way of studying and and teaching. Although we do periodically do a sermon series on maybe one of our core values or around our mission, maybe something on relationships or generosity or suffering, but we typically find, uh, as we walk through books of the Bible, we actually get to cover those topics and so many other topics that we wouldn't get to cover if we weren't working our way through books of the Bible. And so um, we're excited to be able to jump in to Ruth one. I mean, even today, as we look at chapter one, I think you're gonna see something that is so applicable and in so many ways relatable for you and definitely for those that you're walking through life with on a daily basis, because life is uh, complex and life is uh, messy at times. As a matter of fact, uh, some of you sit here today or maybe you're tuned in online today, and those those would actually be the words that you would use to describe the current season that you are in. Complex and messy. There are times in our life of pain and suffering. And I think we're honest, there's moments of us questioning God about his love for us and his care for us. As a matter of fact, the... The complexity and the messiness and the nuance of our lives can often be addressed in response, I think, to two questions that either, depending on the current situation of life, these questions either sit at the forefront of our conscious thoughts or they sit in the background of our daily lives as we kind of go through our lives. And these are the questions. Is God really in control of my life? Does God actually care about me? now maybe those questions for you are theoretically and theologically simple to answer maybe you would say and maybe you did say when they popped up on the screen a quick yes of course god is sovereign and yes of course god loves me but what about in the moments of your life when god seems unseen and it feels as if you're unheard while the griefs and challenges of life are all too tangible? And maybe not you, what about for those that you love and those that you do life with that are wrestling with the answer to those two questions? Because sometimes our quick answers can feel um, a little trite. Or offer little shelter for our hearts and minds, but it's precisely in that place of wondering where God is and what God is up to and whether or not he actually loves us because we can't always see uh, him or feel him or understand him. It's here that the book of Ruth greets us with a reminder of God's divine providence, and God's divine love. And I'm so thankful, I'm so thankful that we get to talk about that this morning, but also in the weeks to come over the next few Sundays. I'll give you a little bit of background uh, before we jump into Ruth one. The first words in the book of Ruth read, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. This serves as a clue in regards to the broad historical and biblical background for the events that are set to unfold. In our English Bibles, Ruth is situated immediately after the book of Judges. And as many of you know, we took the eight Sundays before Easter, and we taught through uh, much of Judges. If you missed any of those messages, you can go back and listen to them online. But we repeatedly talked about how this time period was characterized by a pattern of rebellion by the Israelites against the Lord, most prominently in the form of idolatrous worship practices. Because of the Israelites' breach of covenant with the Lord, they would experience divine retribution, often at the hands of a surrounding nation. They would ultimately repent in response to this retribution at which point the Lord would raise up a judge to lead the Israelites usually militarily so that they might throw off their oppressors and they would experience peace for a season this would however lead to another period of spiritual apathy and idolatry which would then again begin the cycle and we kept talking about the cycle that you see throughout Judges sin, discipline, distress, grace, deliverance, peace And I think the best way to characterize the time period described in the book of Judges and during which Ruth is set is by offering the description presented by the author of Judges himself in the very last verse, which easily rolls right into the first verse of Ruth. And as a reminder, here is the last words of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this time that is characterized by darkness and idolatry and spiritual confusion, and yet, the Lord remained faithful to his covenant people throughout. And the book of Ruth, well, it's gonna be quite the picture of God's faithfulness, of his divine love and his divine providence. Ruth one, verse one, here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. So let's pause for just a moment. And these verses uh, introduce us to a few of the people in the story and some of the plot, we're gonna say this over and over again. Um, Ruth is such an intentionally, carefully crafted story that everything matters. Uh, The book of Ruth is what we call a narrative and that's different from the way we read some other books of the Bible. You could say it's the the difference between reading a news article online uh, versus reading some poems versus reading a novel. Different types of biblical literature require different approaches. And in this instance, as the book of Ruth is a short story, we get the opportunity to see narrative develop and we get to see intentional plot devices and language choices that all shape the way we interpret the story. And it's all on purpose by the author. And if you're hearing this or if you're reading this for the first time, then you might think this is a story about a guy named Elimelech who had a wife named Naomi and two boys. And we're told uh, the tribe and the city that they're from, but we're also told where they had gone. They had gone to Moab, from Bethlehem to Moab. Why? Because of famine in the land, famine in Bethlehem. And just so you know, there's history here between the Israelites and the Moabites. They're traditionally enemies, and because everything matters... In what we're reading, it helps us understand that this story doesn't just speak to the story of this family, but it's set against uh, the backdrop of tremendous upheaval and destruction and pain amongst the whole of God's people, which I think you have even a better understanding of since we taught through Judges. And they have sojourned there because of the famine. But it also says that they remained there, put down some roots, and this is what it says in verse three. Look at it with me. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and without her husband. Well, so much for this being about Elimelech Within five verses, a lot has happened. And who we have been introduced to and where they're from and where they've gone, again, it all matters if you want a total picture of what's going on in the story. So in the times of the judges, this dad and mom and two sons head out from Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread, which is ironic because they're leaving the house of bread because there is a famine. There's no bread. So they head to Moab. Elimelech, his name means, my God is king, which is also kind of ironic, because it would seem that he's kinda doing what seemed right to him. And then you have Naomi, and her name means pleasant. And we'll get to the significance of that in a little bit. They have two sons, and after Elimelech dies, those two sons marry, Moabite women, which was not encouraged for those from Israel. They married ladies named Orpah and Ruth and they were each married for about 10 years and they're each childless for 10 years. And I'm going to say this and keep coming back to this over and over and over again because everything matters. That's no small thing. Not only has Naomi experienced the grief of being widowed, but now after a decade of waiting and hoping that her family lineage would be continued which meant everything in this culture. We read that both of her sons also die and their wives are also without children. So Naomi, just so you understand, is an aged widow without children left to care for her and there are no grandchildren. So the lineage is not being passed on. This is not an overstatement for me to say this. She is in the worst possible position for an Israelite woman. It does not get any bleaker than this. And what's interesting is the 10-year period has also left her in a position to be too old to bear children again herself. So she's an unlikely candidate for remarriage. Naomi is truly in a terribly difficult and painful situation from which anyone would likely struggle to see any path forward. Is God really in control? Does God really care? And I don't wanna rush past this. Like I think it is important for us to contemplate today. Think about how Naomi is possibly thinking. She's an Israelite. She's a daughter of Yahweh from the line of Abraham. Surely I will be blessed. Even though the world is falling apart around me, I love God so good things, as I define good things, will happen to me even though the world is crumbling. And not only does she not receive good things from her perspective, she experiences painful loss, how all of us would describe the opposite of good things. Some compare Naomi and the losses she experiences to that of Job, who also experienced a lot of loss. And if we could fast forward to um, April of 2022, this is the world some of us also live in. And here's what I mean. Uh, Be kind, do good, love others. And yeah, I can see that the world is falling apart around me. But as long as I do good things, at least more good things than bad things, then God will send good things as I define good things my way. Like there's even an evangelical subculture. I don't know how sub it is anymore. It's way too much culture that teaches and writes books about all of this. How to have your best life now. 10 steps to a better you. 10 steps to a better year. 10 steps to a better life. And some of you, if you're honest, and I know some of your stories, not everybody, some of you have had your faith rattled because you lived in and walked in and bought into that shaky theology. And then tough times hit and you've struggled to process the goodness of God because of the pain of life. But here's the thing, as I was thinking this week, you might not read those books. You might not say you believe that dangerous theology. Yet still in your mind, if you're honest, you're regularly thinking, I'm a pretty good person, doing pretty good things, who loves God, goes to church, prays faithfully. And I can see that the world's crumbling But then the world crumbling hits uh, a little close to home. And you find yourself thinking either at the forefront of your mind or running in the background of your mind. Why the hardships, Lord? Why the pain? Why the heartache? Are you really in control? Do you really care about me? Because here's the thing, we're gonna see that Naomi directly ties all of her hardships to God. And again, I don't want us to not sit in what would have been Naomi and her daughter-in-law's reality. Because here's what some of you could think sitting here today. You could think, come on, Naomi. It's gonna be all right. And you're thinking that because you've read to the end of chapter four. So you know how this goes. But Naomi hasn't read to the end of chapter four. She doesn't even know she's in chapter one. Right? Right? So it's easy to be dismissive of that sort of thing at times. By the way, that's how some people interact with Christians who think that they're being dismissive of their pain. You might go, well, I know people that have lost loved ones and it's gonna gonna be fine. But as author Carolyn James says in her book, Finding God in the Margins, I just thought this was a great reminder for where we are in chapter one. Naomi's catastrophic losses complete the collapse of her world. We find her sitting in the smoldering ruins of the life she once knew with no hope of recovery. She has no hope, no, she has no choice but to buy into the culture's view of her. Anyone in Naomi's world, including Naomi herself, would tell us with absolute certainty the story is over. Once the men are wiped from the story, there is no story. That's the culture. But this is where the Bible begs to differ with the world's way of devaluing women. For it is at this point, much to our surprise, the biblical camera zooms in on two childless women And their plight is front and center. But so is the Bible's radically different view of women and their value in God's eyes. Verse six, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. So they're headed back to Bethlehem. So I wanna stop right here because even so early in the story, but here in verse six and seven, you get this initial presentation of the grace of God. Though I think it would be easy to read over it as such. Here's what you see the Lord in his kindness and grace has returned the agricultural production to Israel in Bethlehem with no mention here that we see of any kind of repentance on behalf of Israel. So you take that and then you couple it with the fact that Naomi was able to hear about this transition in Israel's fortunes while she's at work in the fields of Moab. God's kindness and grace. Some would say divine providence. Again, these are small. I think they're at times easily missed markers, but as we've said, and they're placed all throughout the story, everything matters, right? It's just this reminder that the Lord is at work. And I would say that to you today too. I'll just come back to you and today and I don't know everything that's going on. I don't know if it seems super hopeless for you or those that you love or those that you're close to. But he's working. And so she returns, reverses the decision and direction that she had gone with her husband all those years early and they head back to her homeland, back to Bethlehem and this is what it says in verse eight. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Verse nine says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, we're gonna return with you to your people. Verse 11 says, but Naomi said, turn back my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, and even if I should have a husband this night and would bear sons, are you gonna wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. So you see this conversation that takes place between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. Orpa and Ruth, there are a few things I think to point out, but in verse eight, Naomi, she invokes the name of Yahweh in blessing her daughters-in-law. And in doing so, she introduces the concept of hesed. In Hebrew, that means kindness. And as one commentator said, I thought it was so good, Hesed cannot be translated with one English word. It's a covenant term, wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, it refers to acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. Divine acts of Hesed would bring the opposite of the pain and the grief that these women have all been experiencing for more than a decade. And so I stop this morning just to point that out here in verse 8 because this word and this concept of Hesed is ultimately going to play such a vital role throughout the entire story of Ruth. We're going to unpack it more in the weeks to come. Naomi blesses the girls. Asked that God would be kind to them as they begin, as they have been to her in the face of losing her husband and sons, and that God would give them rest and another husband. Because again, culturally, marriage meant security. It wasn't simply identity. It was security. It was survival. So she tells them to go and each of you return to your moms and I'm going to pray that you find another husband. That's the conversation. But as you see in verse 10, Orpah and Ruth say, nope, we're going to go with you. And then Naomi insists. Like There's multiple times in this interaction that she insists that they return to Moab. And you get the feeling with each uh, insistence, she's getting a little more firm and she's getting a little more direct and she's explaining herself more and more. Because basically, it's what she's saying. She's saying, I'm too old to have a husband. And if I did have a husband and immediately had some sons, are you going to wait till they're old enough to marry and have children with them? Because that was the strong commitment to preserving the family line back in the day. That's how it worked. And some of you are going, I am so glad I did not live back then. Exactly. So the kindness of Naomi is really this I'm going to let you out of the deal. Because there is no remarriage for you back in Bethlehem. Stay here. It's better for you here from Naomi's perspective. And then you hear, and we read it, and I don't know if it jumped out to you or not. You hear Naomi say, what I believe is under everything else that she's actually been saying. Look back at verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me." There it is. Like when you peel back the layers, so to speak, you actually do get at the heart of what people are thinking and processing. From her perspective, God is the cause of her troubles. Her grief is real. her life is hard she is disappointed she is discouraged she is weary and while your circumstances and my circumstances might be different than hers in many ways the thoughts that she eventually verbalizes here if you're honest maybe you've thought them I've thought them and maybe at times you verbalized them. God, are you really in control of my life? God, do you really actually care about me? And I want to let you know that if those thoughts and questions at times aren't at the forefront of your mind or running through the back of your mind as you go about your daily life. I wanna let you in on something. You are doing life regularly with people and those are the questions they're asking. They might be phrasing them a little different, but that's what's going on. Do you wanna know what's going on in some way, shape or form in your neighbor's house? Like you don't really know your neighbor's that way. Well, I wonder what's, that, what's going on over there. This in some way, shape or form. That coworker who doesn't seem to talk a lot? That classmate that never really engages with the class maybe and is just kind of back off the side a little bit? I don't know. Different times, different seasons, different ways, different circumstances phrase the question a little bit differently. Is he real? Well, if he's real, is he actually in control of my life? Well, if he's in control of my life, does he really care about me? Because it would look like he's not in control of my life. In verse 14, though all three women grieve again together, Orpah departs to her family. She actually goes back to Moab. And Ruth, she reaffirms her commitment to remain with Naomi and just real quick, you might be tempted or people maybe, if you've heard other people teach the book of Ruth, I'm not exactly sure. If you have, you maybe have heard people who've been a little harsh towards Orpah for walking away, especially if you know the story of Ruth staying with Naomi. But I, well, I just wanted to point this out. The author here doesn't criticize Orpah. Like that's not the point to be mean or to look down on Orpah to like think ill of her. I really think the point is to contrast what she's doing with what Ruth Is actually doing and saying. And this is what she says in verse 15. She said, See, your sister in law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister in law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Orpah does what's expected, Ruth does the unexpected. Verses 16 and 17 are there's so much here are remarkable and beautiful bits of Hebrew. Poetry, sometimes get recited at weddings, it's not really the point. Even so, side note, even so, in many ways, even Naomi prayed that the Lord would deal kindly, like act with Hesed with Ruth and Orpah. But Ruth introduces the lived out picture of all that Hesed, that that kindness represents in what she says here, and not only what she says, but the actions that accompany what she says. Like it is this shocking portrait of loyalty and compassion and commitment that would have been unprecedented. I'm with you. Where you go, I'll go. Your God, my God, side note, you're not currently speaking very well of your God, but I'm in. Like think about that. What Ruth is doing is a tremendous risk to Ruth. She articulates and will show such selfishness. She's stepping away from every form of security that any person, let alone a poor widow, in that cultural context would have clung to, right? She's leaving her native homeland. She's leaving her own people, even her own gods. Because what we read here in the story is that Ruth is acknowledging and realizing something. If she commits herself to Naomi and she's gonna follow her home to Bethlehem, then that means she's also committing herself to Naomi's people, Israel. Side note, remember to the very beginning, Moabites, Israelites, not the best. And she's committing herself to Naomi's God, Yahweh. And I would say, there's probably too much to say that she was committed to Yahweh like in a vacuum. And that was the primary reason why she's accompanying Naomi. But we've already seen the Lord working, haven't we? In and through the traumatic and painful circumstances that Naomi faced, that she would know to head back towards Bethlehem. And now we see him working in and through the life and words and actions of a Moabite widow. Why? Because in the midst of human pain and human heartache, there is constantly divine providence and divine love at play. Now, Naomi at this moment might not be seeing it that way. Like, think about it for a moment. What she actually might be thinking is, if Ruth comes with me, it's gonna be this constant reminder of the bitterness my life has turned into, right? Right? Like if I wake up every day and you're under the roof with me, all I'm going to think about is how horrible life is. As a matter of fact, you can actually see what's going on in Naomi's heart and mind as this first chapter concludes. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara of the first act, if you will. Naomi is now back home. She left a decade ago as one who was not only called Naomi, means pleasant, but one whose life, like aside from the famine that everybody was experiencing, her life demonstrated, she says this here, a life of fullness, pleasantness, as her name would indicate. The town is all abuzz at her return, not only because they had heard what had happened to her, but because she had left a woman filled in her prime and she's returning a widowed, prospectless, older woman. Her anger and her bitterness overflows as she tells the people of Bethlehem to call her Mara, which means bitter. Like uh, if you remember in Exodus 15, when the Israelites are headed out of Egypt, they only found water to drink that was bitter. And they also grumbled against the Lord. And while she doesn't necessarily uh, accuse the Lord of doing her wrong, her perception of the Lord's actions clearly skews negative. She alternates here between using the divine name Yahweh and Shaddai, which means almighty. So she's acknowledging that the Lord is almighty saying whatever the reason for it fair or unfair i have been the object of the lord's scorn and punishment in my life which was full is now empty calamity is upon her and there is this stark contrast isn't there between what naomi is saying here and what ruth had just what just a few verses earlier what ruth had pledged ruth leaves everything I will go with you. I will stay with you. Your God, my God. And Naomi, on the other hand, she rolls into town bitter, so bitter that she wants to change her name from Naomi, meaning pleasant, tomorrow, meaning bitter. That's bitter. And it seems pretty bleak and it seems pretty depressing here at the end of chapter one, but then you read these words at the very end. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. ah, That's what they call a teaser in the business. The book of Ruth is one whole narrative. Chapter one isn't intended to offer resolution, but frankly, to introduce more and more tension that's gonna be addressed in the coming chapters over the next three Sundays. So my encouragement to you is to keep coming back each week. I don't think you would, uh, I'll say it this way, I don't think you would turn a movie off about 30 minutes in and expect to know precisely what happens I think the same would be said for Naomi's story and Ruth's story. We're just in act one here. But one thing we could do today is contemplate some things personally uh, based on what we read through today. So I just wanna pose a few questions to you. Where do you currently think the Lord is in the midst of your pain and crisis? Do you believe that God actually cares in regards to what you or your loved ones are walking through? Do you believe that God is more than just a small player in the story of your life? Do you live as if God... um, checks in and then checks out on you? Sometimes he's present. Often he seems absent. Do you believe that God is actually operating in your life for your ultimate good and his glory? Even though you can't, see that through the fog of your current pain. All of life, you know, really is a story involving uh, regular people. Regular people like Naomi and Ruth. Me, you, your neighbor, your coworker classmate. And there's a whole lot of people that are asking two questions. Is God really in control of my life? Does he actually care about me? And our life is this invitation to trust in the foundational hope of God's providence and God's love for his people. And yeah, it's difficult at times, We see that in this story. But you know what else you see even here? And one's tough. One's a tough chapter. (laughs) But even here, you get these glimpses of the reversal that's coming. The fulfillment of promises that the Lord will accomplish in our lives and in our world as we have eyes to see a heart to believe, and that, to me—that's the beautiful thing about this story. Nothing happens in isolation, because even in what it, what seems so hopeless, we actually we we celebrated it last weekend, didn't we? And we've sung about it. We have a li- we have a living hope. That's the kicker. That's the key. the beautiful picture of his divine providence and his divine love. In and through Jesus Christ. If what we celebrated last weekend and what we talk about, honestly, if you're newer with us every Sunday here and sing about, if it's true, then you can be guaranteed. He's at work. You know that, right? For your ultimate good, for his glory, and for his fame. If what we celebrated last week and every Sunday here at Fellowship Greenville, he is sovereign over what you're walking through. And he really does care. I'll leave you this morning, or afternoon now, the same way that uh, the author of Ruth left everyone listening in or reading at the end of chapter one. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Divine providence, divine love. Would you pray with me? I just want to give you a moment there in your seat. to quietly articulate to God what you're processing through based off of the questions we've been asking this morning and through the study of chapter one of Ruth. An invitation for you to be honest with your questions Be honest with your doubts, your frustrations. We can learn many things from the Psalms, but one of the things we can definitely learn is it's okay to tell God what you're thinking. He's not put out or put off by that. If you wanna turn your attention to the screen, I just wanna read Psalm 13 over us before we sing another song together. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord, my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice Because you have rescued me. And I will sing to the Lord. Because he is good to me. Amen.